Hello and welcome to this At Any Rate podcast. I'm Arindam Sandalia from JP Morgan's Global FX Strategy Team. Now, as far as uh, markets are concerned, we seem to be in the middle of an almost uh, fast-forward markets in some sense. Not a week seems to go by these days uh, without some bank or the other getting into trouble. Sometimes, two at a time, as happened this week, uh, bank shares, regional bank shares have been uh, falling at an alarming pace. Uh, other asset markets also seem to be joining in, in the fray. Uh, so Brent made new lows this week. Uh, Yields are under pressure, uh, not least as central banks seem to be in the process of uh, wrapping up uh, tightening campaigns. And as if this were not enough, uh, the debt ceiling debate in the U.S. has heated up with uh, new estimates of the drop debt date uh, turning out to be much earlier than what we were expecting even a week ago. And yet, in the middle of all of this, uh, FX is strangely trendless. FX vol seems to be uh, very subdued. And FX is a mystery at the best of times. So to help uh, me decode this, I'm joined with my colleague, Patrick Locke in New York. Patrick, uh, welcome to this podcast. And maybe we'll start with uh, you know one of the uh, top of mind issues for investors, this ongoing regional bank stress in the US. So what are your conversations like with uh, clients on this topic? Uh, you know, How are people thinking about the potential for uh, non-linear credit tightening as a result of, of these bank stresses? And uh, you know, how do we think about the fallout on FX? Yeah, thanks, Arindam. Um, you know, personally, I, I do think it's discouraging that this has come up again um, so quickly. Uh, I think there is a reasonable argument to be made that after the first few bank failures, um, you know, it's fair to argue that kind of the acute stress in the sector was behind us. Uh, certainly, there's been a lot of policy support introduced. Um, there was the acquisition on this past weekend. Uh, kind of thought that any, you know, lingering sectoral weakness might be confined to kind of longer term issues, stuff like CRE, uh, which seemed to be more of like a slow burn rather than kind of an acute focus. Um, so the fact that, you know, a couple more banks have come under pressure this week, as you suggested, uh, is unfortunate. Um, if not outright concerning. Um, so yeah, trying to kind of gauge um, macro spillovers generally. Um, our global economists have done some useful work here trying to benchmark that. Um, you know, bank credit as a growth engine has obviously been quite important. Um, it's risen significantly in recent years. So signs of a pullback in lending and less demand overall from higher rates, both of which we're seeing, you know, has obvious growth implications. Um, I think our economists suggested that you know bank le- bank lending in the U.S. is expected to fall from a 12% year-over-year rate to about 2% in the U.S. It was still positive, but obviously much weaker. Um, mechanically, that implies about a 2% growth drag uh, to GDP in the U.S. Um, so obviously pretty significant. Uh, the only the silver lining, the upshot there though, being that basically there are some significant offsets uh, in terms of kind of the global macro backdrop. Um, more than you probably might expect, um, particularly, you know, the global growth engine continues to be chugging along. Um, that's kind of a material offset. And then also, you know, we've talked a lot about private sector uh, balance sheets being a lot cleaner at this point in the cycle than they have been in the past. Um, and so what that does is it creates, you know, less of a dependency on on borrowing uh, to continue to finance things like, you know, consumption and investment. So, um how it all nets out is, a sec- is essentially that 2% perceived drag on U.S. growth is actually, uh, you know, reduced closer to something like 0.8% of GDP. Um, certainly not nothing, um, but obviously not as 
as dire as what one what one might expect from a straightforward kind of you know um, series of bank failures. You know the, the pass through to the FX that channel is diverse. Um, we've seen some net impacts, um, as you say, but not not obviously a lot. And I think there is still a number of ways this sin can go. Um, you know, most obviously U.S. yields are substantially lower on net. Uh, I think that's fair in the context of this being perceived as having done some of the Fed's work for it. Um, I think Powell mentioned anecdotally that you know this could be worth one to two hikes in terms of you know tighter financial conditions. Uh, so U.S. yields are much lower on the year across the curve in the U.S. Um, and you know the extent of dollar weakness that has been delivered, I think, is generally consistent with that. Um, you know, compared to relative moves in the rest of G10 by comparison. Um, maybe a lot of that low-hanging fruit has already been picked. Obviously, we had a pretty steep starting level for U.S. rates, and the OIS curve is now basically pricing in a cut um, as early as the July FOMC meeting. Um, but if growth does, you know, slow materially further from here and we avoid kind of the worst case flare ups, then I think that kind of the lower yield channel will still continue to matter, uh, you know, for the dollar outlook. Uh, but you mentioned nonlinear impacts. Um, that's kind of what we've got our eyes open for. Um, we had a bit of your kind of traditional left hand side dollar reaction early in March, though obviously it was it was re relatively fleeting, um, but dollar supportive nonetheless. Um, you know, I think that channel still exists to the extent that banking stress um, becomes even, you know, you know, more acute from here. Um, and as I said at the outset, I think it's it, it is discouraging that we are seeing more signs of stress kind of crop up uh, in the last few days, um, despite all the policy solutions that have already been delivered. Um, so, yeah, bottom line, I think there's a still there's still a few ways that this can play out and continue to impact our space. Um, but maybe I'll turn it back to you, Ari, um, and sticking with banking stress, um, again, you kind of noted that um, it is starting to kind of infest and percolate in the other, in the other macro markets, oil being a good example, um, breaking into the 60 handle in WTI. Um, overall, though, the data flow still doesn't see that bad. So, uh, you know, interested to get your input as to whether or not you're kind of surprised at this macro versus market disconnect. Um, how much further can that extend? Um, and what do you think about the FX setup? Oh, yeah, this is kind of interesting, isn't it? I mean, this is the, uh, to me, the defining feature of the macro landscape today. Markets are moving much faster than uh, what the data flow is doing. Um, and, you know, either markets know something that the data doesn't, um, or there's genuinely um, a degree of resilience to the underlying global economy, and then uh, markets will mean revert back to the data. So when we look at history, uh, you know, we do find some instances of um, episodes that are, you know, that rhyme with the current environment. Uh, so you have global PMI sitting around this 50 sort of handle, uh, but markets uh, in throes of what looks like um, an almost recessionary scare. So this would be episodes like, uh, you know, fourth quarter of 1998, uh, around uh, some months around the 2011 EU debt crisis, so also coinciding with this technical default in the US, um, the China Deval episode of 1516, the uh, post-Fed hike uh, peak US rates environment of late 2018. You know, you did get this sort of juxtaposition of uh, underlying growth looking relatively okay and yet uh, markets being uh, quite fearful. And uh, the one common thread running through all of those episodes is that every time that markets came under pressure, 
they were bailed out either by outright Fed easing, as happened in 1998, or in 2018, when the Fed abruptly pivoted rubbish, or in um, 2011-2016, when you got uh, different flavors of Fed accommodation, either by slow-walking hiking cycles or ramping up QE programs and so on. Uh, you know, but then compared to all of those episodes, you have three elements today that you've not seen before. You've never walked into one of these episodes with recession odds this high. So we're sitting about 60% on one year ahead uh, recession odds based on our economist's uh, recession indicator. Um, we've never had uh, inflation this far above target, which handcuffs the Fed from muscular easing in the way that it has done in the past. And um, in every single one of those episodes, we've had VIX sitting around 25 or higher, uh, you know, in some of these episodes, closer to 40. And today you are sitting at uh, very subdued levels of vol risk premium, which is really puzzling. So there's no buffer for something going wrong. And uh, as we know, as we've been talking about on these podcasts for the last few weeks, uh, the mood music in FX this year has been one of trading carry because it's worked for 12 months. Importantly, nothing else is working. And this is a mix that's quite worrying for me. You know, the Fed does have... Uh, regulatory tools at its disposal today uh, to soothe markets, which it didn't have before. We saw that with the rapid rollout of the uh, BTFP after the SVB episode. So yes, the policy toolkit is richer, but uh, the macro challenges are also commensurately more daunting, I feel. My own suspicion is that uh, risk premia in FX are much too thin, that we should be more worried about uh, high beta FX than the market is giving it credit for, outside of maybe a couple of pockets like the Aussie dollar and the Norwegian krona, where uh, the currency is trade substantially cheap to, to fair value. But uh, on the whole, my sense is we should be a little more worried about, as we put it, the left-hand side of the dollar smile. Now, speaking about things that are different in this cycle, you know, there is uh, a key event risk that is hanging over markets. We have done well to sort of avoid speaking about this issue so far, but it can't be put off any longer, this uh, debt ceiling mess. And it seems like we've been talking about this forever. But for those not following the blow-by-blow -blow account of this uh, episode, do you mind updating our listeners on where things currently stand? Of course. Um, yeah, so anecdotally, I would say that the debt ceiling has actually become kind of the chief talking point with clients. Um, due in part to, you know, limited conviction more broadly, but also because of material developments um, over the last one to two weeks, which I'll run through briefly. Um, you know, first a couple of weeks ago, Republicans passed a budget bill in the House, um, which to me was a necessary first step in that it gave them something tangible to bring to the table uh, and negotiate with, with Biden in the White House. Uh, so the lines have kind of been drawn in terms of who wants what, um, but that said, more importantly, you know, tax receipts have been flowing in the background uh, the last few weeks of April. They didn't look great. Um, you know, granted, naturally, they look soft compared to last year because last year was a banner year for the government on the back of uh, capital gains receipts um, from a strong 2021 in capital markets. Uh, and so this year was always expected to be weaker. But I think even then, uh, the actual flow of receipts um, has been a little bit more front loaded and um, more underwhelming than was originally anticipated. So overall, I think kind of a disappointment there. Um, and so basically that culminated earlier this week when Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen uh, said the drop date could be as early as June 1st. That compared, as you suggested, to our previous bias of you know, late July or early August. Uh, so that was notable, but I think you know, what really did it for markets was um, the Congressional Budget Office saying essentially the same thing. The key difference being that the CBO is independent and nonpartisan, um, which gives their signaling a little bit more credibility. Um, I'd say the reaction macro markets more broadly was muted, 
the reaction certainly in T-bill markets um, was not. You had about a probably a 60 basis point repricing um, of bill yields with June maturities. Um, and some are trading now 20 to 40 basis points cheap relative to match maturity OIS. Um, so a pretty significant risk premium embedded in there. That's hard to ignore for me. Um, and I think if negotiations take the rest of, rest of May towards that June drop dead date, um, I think we are going to get more of a material macro market response eventually. Um, but from here, it's kind of about the path that politics take. And obviously, that's, that's hard to predict. There are ultimately, I think, a number of potential outcomes, stuff like, you know, just getting to a straightforward negotiated re resolution, um, kind of a, a suspension for three months, maybe something that ties it with um, having to pass the appropriations bill uh, and implicitly a potential government shutdown as well, maybe in September. Uh, there's things like the discharge petition and the 14th Amendment, which are being bandied about. Those are a little bit more technical, but just kind of show, goes to show that this is ultimately um, a political process, uh, which, again, are hard to predict. But, um, you know, for now, for the next month, we'll be in, um, in kind of D.C. politics watching mode, um, trying to keep as good a pulse as we can on this thing. Um, and to your point, ultimately, I think the broad view of is that um, the asymmetry of these outcomes between the banking stress uh, and the debt ceiling, um, it, se it certainly seems like with a general sense of limited risk premium in our markets generally that, you know, uh, the, the risk reward around hedging something like a June drop dead date seems to seems to make sense to us. Um, and with that, all right, maybe I'll pass it back to you for one more comment. Um, it was a relatively important week from kind of a macro perspective. We had four uh, you know, big central banks in the G10 space meet. Uh, one surprise, the RBA. Um, but, you know, on the whole, did we learn much in your view from from the four meetings this week? No, I think we did uh, take a few things away from the meetings. You know, broadly three uh, on my mind. First is uh, it's quite clear that uh, we are near the very end of uh, tightening campaigns. Some central banks have almost explicitly gone on hold, uh, like the Fed. I mean, they told us fairly bluntly that policy is already tight. Uh, and even for the RBA, which surprised the consensus with a rate hike, you know, uh, the house call is that they have reached terminal. And even though policy is biased to be asymmetrically tighter from here, you know, in the baseline, we have no more rate hikes, nor just hiked 25 basis points, and they should be done with another one in June. So the overall feel is that these are all end of cycle rate hikes, which by definition have less potency in terms of lifting forward rate expectations and helping currencies rally on the back of those. The second is, uh, you know, as behooves any responsible central bank in this sort of inflation climate, everybody's forward guidance continues to be still hawkish. Uh, with a with a bias to tighten, uh, should things uh, you know demand such action? But I'm not sure that markets are taking those that forward guidance very seriously. Uh, you know, rates have fallen across the board this week. FX has followed suit for the most part. And one observation this year is that uh, you know for the past two or three months, um, even as we've seen rates FX correlations in uh, FX remain tight. Uh, that correlation has really been driven by currencies falling in response to, to dropping yields rather than rallying in response to rising yields. Uh, so you know, one can argue that currency markets have been pretty much in end of tightening cycle mode for a few months now. And this week's price action basically seals the deal uh, for that sort of regime. 
And then uh, the third takeaway is there is one you know, sort of exception to this general pattern, that is the ECB. The, the euro is the only currency in G10 where the, the currency has gone up more on days when European rates have risen than it has gone out on days when, when rates have fallen. And that I attribute directly to both the, uh, the inflation climate, uh, the challenge uh, under which the ECB is operating, as well as the credibility of the ECB forward guidance, which markets have taken to heart. Uh, and one point that we have been making uh, in our publications is that uh, uh, even as the uh, Euro, Euro forward curve is priced uh, for, or at least used to be priced for uh, a relatively aggressive ECB rate hikes, they are no longer, terminal has actually come off this week after the uh, ECB meeting. Uh, those rate expectations are not entirely baked into Euro FX yet. And uh, we've been constructive on Euro against cyclically challenged uh, high beta currencies like the Swedish krona and the Kiwi dollar uh, for a while now. And I still like those traits, feel like those are actually quite robust to the generally uh, risk averse environment that we might be uh, walking into over the next few weeks. Uh, so so those, those are one of the key suite of traits that we continue to run alongside um, you know, a basket of uh, you know, bullish yen uh, expressions against similar sorts of high beta currencies. So with that, we come to the end of this podcast. Uh, thanks very much for listening in. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please refer to JP Morgan Research Reports related to its content for more information, including important disclosures. 2023, JP Morgan Chase & Company, all rights reserved. This episode was recorded on May 5th, 2023.